Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where two guys who studied engineering try to pin down a Catholic priest with irrelevant facts. Welcome to today's episode. Two guys who studied engineering is an accurate description. I did. Well, I had to be very accurate with that because I knew if I wasn't very accurate with that, you would pin me. But it sounds like you're going to pin me anyway. Well, but there's another way you could do it. You could say two guys who actually use their education and you. (laughs) (laughs) One guy who studied theology... One guy who studied engineering and one guy who got his mother off his back by getting an engineering degree and went and did what he wanted. How about that? I think I think that ticks most of the boxes. Yeah, that works. So, <laughs> Sons of Thunder. So, if anyone hadn't heard the story, Sons of Thunder is a reference to James and John, the apostles, who our Lord nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. And there's some conjecture one night at my dinner table is Jesus referring to James and John as having thunderous personalities, or is he saying that their mother is cantankerous? What? Thunder. They could hear her for miles. Thunder. I'd like to go with, uh, I think it's probably uh, James and John who are the, the thunderous ones. My mother would like to think that it's the other. She would. But either way, they were the ones who saw the great mysteries. They were always present when Jesus was doing something really quite amazing. And hopefully we're going to try and reveal something of that. And they changed because John went from being one of the sons of thunder to being the apostle of love. Yeah, the the, the beloved. The beloved. Yeah. That's a big change. Yeah. So there's a big journey there. So how do we... Well, we've been talking to the last ones about our own journey, etc. But how do you communicate the gospel to others? You know, this is a big part of John's ministry. James as well. I mean, James was... Well, John communicated God's mission by writing it down. Just saying. Yes. Thank you, Marty. <laughs> Whereas James... James communicated by dying. <laughs> <laughs> he travelled first, though. How do you communicate the gospel? How do you identify Christ in certain situations and... How do you, is there a time to be silent? Is there a time to speak up? Should it be the same thing the whole time? Communication in of itself is very difficult. I mean, this is one of the difficult things from the walking around the world was that I had to learn nine languages. I didn't know any of them before I left Australia. So I learned nine languages from scratch. And I learned very quickly that not being able to speak a language does not mean you cannot communicate. And being able to speak a language does not mean you can communicate. And I think the best example of that might be you, Marty, with family. I'm sure there's plenty of times where you've given very clear instructions in English <laughs> and yet the exact opposite happens and you even get claimed that you said something opposite. That, that's because the message is received according to the mode of the receiver. Exactly. So getting beyond... St. Augustine! Just, <laughs> just getting beyond the, the... Just say this, do that etc. In each moment, how do you communicate? And I arrived into the United States and thought, thank goodness, for the first time in nine months, 10 months, I can now speak English. And, and the then you town, found you were in the United States. I'm in the States. United States. And no, that's not correct. <laughs> or the first town, I, sorry, second town I walked into, I was thirsty. I'd run out of water before arriving in the town. Walking down the street, a woman's walking towards me. As she went to walk past, I said, oh, excuse me, is there a shop in town? 
And she looked at me blankly and said, why do you need a sharp? I said, I'm thirsty. I want to get a drink. And she said, well, why don't you go to the store? Okay, yeah, the, the store. So I found it very quickly that a shop is where you take your car. It's a workshop. Yeah. You, know, you don't get a drink at the shop. You get a drink at the store. So she directed me to the store. I went there. I bought my drink, drank it at the counter, and then made the obvious mistake, which I should have known, which I said to the girl behind the counter, sorry, do you have a rubbish bin? And she just looked at me blankly. And she, she actually looked past me down the aisle, then looked back at me and said, I don't think we've got one of them. <laughs> I said, no, 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 a rubbish bin. You know, to put rubbish in. She said, oh, a trash can. Now, I should have known that one. But then I made the third mistake of asking this girl, sorry. You went, you went to a bathroom and found that there was no bath in it? <laughs> <laughs> the water closet. No, I said to her, do you have internet? And she just looked at me blankly. I said, oh, my goodness. Surely she understands this. I said, internet, you know, like emails, websites. And she said, oh, internet. They don't pronounce the T. <laughs> oh, internet. Oh, the T is oh, no. silent. We don't have no internet here in town. Straight away, began to realize that I have to change what I'm saying. I made the mistake of saying to someone, yeah, I had to walk the other night with my torch. And I realized afterwards that they all thought I walked down the road with a flaming torch above my head. Because that's a torch. They use a flashlight. Two countries separated by a common language. Indeed. Language is very difficult. There's a Polish priest I met. I was just learning Polish and Polish was by far and away the most difficult language I learned in any of the nine, the nine languages. You speak Polish as well. And the Mówię po polsku. I didn't realise that was the one Mówię of your nine. They do say that Polish is the language spoken in heaven because it takes all of eternity to learn it. <laughs> it was. It's a whole heap of and then stick it all in one word. It just, it made me look ridiculous. And they kind of understood what I was trying to say, and they were very... Polite? No, they laughed at me. <laughs> They'd always laugh at me, uh, but they were polite in then assuming what I meant. But I arrived at one church in Poland where the priest spoke Polish and Italian. I was two days into Polish, so I didn't speak Polish. And I spoke English and Spanish. And he, we managed to communicate. He said, OK, at the end of Mass, I'll invite you forward. And he said, you speak in Spanish, I'll interpret that into Italian, and then I'll translate that into Polish. And he announced to the congregation... What could go wrong? What possibly <laughs> could go wrong? He announced to the congregation what he was going to do, and it was met with raucous laughter. And, <laughs> and he said, no, we'll see how we go. And, and it worked. Well, I think it did. I've got no idea what he said to them, but... I think it worked. Yeah, I just would like to point out that you don't actually have don't, an accurate feedback. No, loop. but some people in the, in the congregation spoke English and they came forward afterwards and reiterated what they'd be doing as a result of what the priest had said. So that gave me hope that they had well, understood. The Chinese whispers worked. Yes, it, it was correct. It had worked. But this is the difficult thing. Communication, language in of itself is just riddled with disaster waiting to happen. So something like introducing a concept that is foreign to another person. Uh, for example, Marty, if I was to invite you to explain to Father Dave here an engineering concept? Oh, well, to be honest, I just try to avoid it because it's time consuming and there's generally there's no benefit because what I do is really boring. So it's long and difficult to get to a point of irrelevance. I was doing it last night. 
I got halfway through and it was just pointless because you realize the point of the story isn't worth, it's just boring engineering crap. Tell me I'm that story from I'm last night example, from America. Right? What were they trying to do with the conveyor belt? You, you know I can't talk about that. Oh, it's all okay. confidentiality. Okay. What were you thinking? <laughs> I can't tell you anything. <laughs> Who knew that they listened to the podcast? It's some um, anonymous place in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go straight to you then, Father Dave. How do you communicate something that might be completely foreign or even worse it's not foreign but it's a misconception okay go back to me do me first i've got an idea come on ask me ask me if i've got an example because i do so the problem with actually communicating the gospel to someone is that often the language that we use just isn't heard what we think is being heard is completely different to what the the listener is hearing what they're understanding for example marty if i'm going to put you on the spot here just for a moment could you please give your best engineering jargon to Father Dave over here, just explain something engineering-wise. No, nah, look, I'm going to answer Since that in a different way. Since you use your degree. Thank you for that acknowledgement. What we, as engineers, do is avoid talking to people who aren't engineers about engineering crap. We look at drawings. We'll have a common education leading up to that. We point at lines and we try and keep people without that degree away from it so that we can understand what each other are saying. Because I'm just going to point at the lines and say, what's that? That's right. Yep. And you're going to say, it's a concrete thing. It's a line. <laughs> it's all about communication. <laughs> okay, so Marty's going to avoid talking to anyone. That's not really going to help, is it? No, not at all. Particularly if I want to try and build something. Got to go to the professionals. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to build the church. Yes. Jesus, Jesus asks us to actually go and take the gospel. So, Father Dave, we can't do what Marty's just suggested, which is just don't talk to anyone who doesn't share the same language. And I understand that in engineering terms, you just don't want to waste your time necessarily. But we are asked to go out. Jesus asks us to take the gospel to the world. Where do you start? Well, it's a good point because I think down through history, a lot of priests have done exactly what Marty said. We've just said, look, it's too complex. Just believe it. And that doesn't really help much at all. <laughs> <coughs> Actually, <laughs> Actually, that does tie in with what Marty was saying because a lot of engineers would say the same thing of, I don't need to explain it. It's just if you do it that way, it'll fall down. Hmm. So get this person to do that and pay me. Yeah. And that's it. And and once again, like, like down through history, the church has often had this idea that people are just not going to get the scriptures. So let's make sure they don't touch them or people are going to misinterpret doctrines, so they should just believe the priest. But what that means is someone comes along with a really simplistic explanation, and everyone's like, ah, oh, finally, you've told us what it's all about, but it's actually kind of wrong. So it, it really comes down to, well, what actually do we mean by the gospel? Like, if you're going to say, well, we've got to communicate the gospel, what is it? Because I think these days, a lot of people have simplified it down to simply be nice. You know, we just need to be nice to each other. That's, that's what Jesus died on the cross for. Yeah, no, I think it was a bit more than that. <laughs> I'm having convulsions. <laughs> <laughs> You're reacting to that idea of the gospel. Well, yeah. In a lot of places here in Australia in particular, it is being taught, we were talking about this before we even started recording, that at the start of the day, that you were talking, Marty, about the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, 
you know, yeah, well, yeah, okay. So this idea you get every now and again that the feeding of the 5,000, the real miracle was that the people in the audience learned to share and they heard Jesus' message and they pulled out the food that they were hiding in it and that there was so much food there that they, had, that they weren't prepared to share with each other beforehand, which is just pathetic. <laughs> I just like, love the patronising tone you did that whole thing with. It's the most anti-Semitic idea you could possibly put forward, that these first century Jews were so stupid that they couldn't even feed themselves. These are people who know how to survive in these conditions, who lived in conditions so much less uh, to the standard that we have in our society. They know how to survive. They've run out of food, they've run out of food. And there is a community as well. But then also the walking on water. Mm. That in itself is presented often as a well, mythology. There, 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 was, there was a classic one. It was in the papers some years back where some theological professor or researcher had come out saying that he'd worked out that actually the Sea of Galilee had just frozen and Jesus was walking on ice. But it, it has this massive presumption that ancient people were just stupid because I mean, these guys are fishermen. They're in a boat. Why is it my hook sinking? Yes. <laughs> and they can't tell that the lake's iced over. Surely they should understand these things. <laughs> We've been rowing all night and we're still <laughs> <in> short. <laughs> they, they can explain a lot, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, there's, there's often this idea that we're a much more educated and enlightened age and so we don't need things like miracles. We don't even need things like... You know, the Gospels, we can work it out ourselves. And so we end up reducing the scriptures down to being just a feel-good, be-nice-to-each-other kind of message. And the same for modern-day miracles. Our Lady of the Caves in South America and Eucharistic miracles. Like, there's plenty of examples going, going on in current, you know, current examples. We just we can't really explain it, so just ignore it. And the, the, the basic idea is that everyone thinks they understand what the Bible's about, but very few people have ever actually read it. Yeah, um, yeah. There's kind of this pres presumption that we know it's just about be nice. Whereas like, if we actually get down to what is the gospel message, the, the classic thing is what they call the, the four-stage gospel message, that the world was created good in the beginning, but then something went bad. You know, So the whole thing in the Garden of Eden where they sinned, and we can see the effects of that. There is something in the world that is broken. No matter how much we try to create the perfect political system or ideology, it always self-destructs. But then, once you know the bad news, that's where the good news comes in, which is that God sent a saviour. God came to redeem that, and pretty much everything that is broken is now redeemed and brought into, the, into something being good. And then, finally, he brings us into a new life. And in particularly, it's a new life through an encounter with a relationship with God, you know, an, an acknowledgement that we've received mercy and love and grace. That's basically what the Bible's about. And so we need to sort of realise, well, that's the message we need to hear in our age. Like I, I it's often, very different to just be nice. It's very different because, you know, to, to be nice means let's just put up with each other. Whereas, and, and, and when you put up with each other, you often just sweep all the bad stuff under the carpet and pretend it's not there. Tolerance, Tolerance is a modern-day secular virtue that people think is, yeah, virtue. But yeah. it's not. I mean... Clearly, to tolerate evil is not a good thing. Yet tolerance as a concept is put forward as the answer to our problems in society. And it's a way of just turning a blind eye to the actual 
problems that are staring us in the face. Young person is addicted to alcohol and drugs and destructive relationships and people will say, well, as long as he's happy. That's the main thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, we end up blinding ourselves to the fact that there is actually something wrong here and it needs to be fixed. And I think this is what the scriptures are really on about. It's, it's an acknowledgement of the truth. You know, so when we say that, you know, that, that second part of the gospel message, something went wrong. That's the point which everyone, I think, in the world agrees with. Everyone in the world knows that the world is not the way it should be. We just don't agree with the answer. Of what it should be. Or how to get there. Mm. So some people are saying if we just get the taxation system right, then it'll all work perfectly. Or if we just treat everyone as equals, then it'll all work perfectly. Or and, extreme end where we just get rid of certain people. Exactly. And so, so you, you look through history and basically it's, it's a series of ideologies where people are trying to solve the problem. Christianity is probably the only one that says, you know what, there's a problem and we can't fix it. We need God to come in and fix it for us. And I think that that's where Christianity becomes completely unique, you know, even, even compared to other religions. Most other religions are like, okay, we acknowledge there's a problem and we've got to work hard to try and make God happy. Whereas we say, actually, it's the other way around. God's the one who makes the first move and God's the one who comes to fix the mess. And that's really what the essence of the gospel message is. It's the fact that we stand in the truth of our mess and our brokenness, and we acknowledge that we've got a God who loves us and comes to save us. And that, that's where real new life and joy comes from. Not too long ago, Marty, you and I were having a conversation. You made a comment about sharing the gospel, saying that, I don't know if you'd made it up on the spot in your wisdom or you had read it and would merely... Well, gee, I hope so. Now. Retorting it. You were talking about how the gospel message these days almost needs to go a step back. To... Oh, that was an idea I got from C.S. Lewis. Now, he put forward the idea that the ancient world had a that second step that something's wrong with the world. They sort of intrinsically understood a lot better. This idea that the gods are unhappy with us, even these polytheistic kind of religions. You know, disasters happen, there's misery, there's suffering because the gods are unhappy with us. That sort of second step was understood by man. And when the Christians, Paul um, and, and others are saying, I have the good news, the good news was an obvious kind of step to, to deal with the, the bad news that everyone understood. Whereas these days in the modern world, we actually need to diagnose the bad news first because even though we're in the middle of generally misery, we're not really actually aware of it. So trying to tell modern man about the bad news in order to tell him about the good news is the challenge. And also the, the, to begin with, that God exists and that therefore you have a purpose, that there is a purpose in life and to all our actions and what we do. There's that almost despair that sets in when there's no sense of purpose mm. in anything that we do. I think you said this, Father Dave, in our previous episodes on overcoming adversity, to actually know that God loves us. Mm. So to know that first in, in communicating the gospel and the other person would, would have a concept of that. Well, this, this is the thing that kind of fascinates me. The gospel is not just a, a message. You know, like, like it's, it's not as though God could have simply sort of written it down and said, there you go, there's the knowledge you now need. There's a, there's a guy, if I, if I can sort of get into the philosophy of communication here, there's this guy by the name of Marshall McLuhan. He, he, he pretty much sort of created the philosophy of media back around the, the 1960s, 1970s. And he was famous for coining the phrase... Was he that, a madman? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was he Scottish? Because <laughs> that, that name sounds like it would roll off a Scottish tongue really well. I, I'd imagine that was probably his origins. Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan. 
But anyway, he he coined the phrase that the medium is the message. That the medium that you use to communicate something actually says more than the actual content of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you write I love you on a perfumed piece of paper in an envelope, it means a whole lot different to if you send it in a text message. Like the actual medium of communication says something. Now, this becomes really interesting with Christianity because when God wanted to communicate something, what medium did he use? He used humanity. So the whole idea that Jesus became, well, God became man. So it wasn't just giving us knowledge. It wasn't just giving us the rules. God actually wanted to communicate his very being, his very love. And he did that through a human being. Now, that, as I say, complex philosophy, you might just think, I don't get it. Um, no, no, it's, it's you know, another way to break that down is that the Christianity is about a relationship, not mm. not a rule book, although that might be what it, some people think it is. Remember, you know, a few weeks ago or a month ago or something, the gospel was talking about Jesus, you know, I've come to divide, to set fathers against sons and daughters against mothers and that kind of thing. Can't remember exactly what the gospel is, but you know, one, one of the gospels. Luke chapter twelve. Luke, Luke, Luke chapter twelve. <laughs> and the homily after it that I heard, um, it culminated in, you know, Jesus is here really asking us to receive his message. That was the you know the big exclamation mark at the end of it. And I heard this. I thought, no, he's not. He's not. He's not. He's not inviting us to choose his his message, his way. He's asking us to choose him. Mm. Like that that gospel passage is really clear about that, but it was missed by the priest. I've got a mental image of you sitting in the church, rocking back in the pew and just saying, no, he's not. Well, I did did ring you straight afterwards and to (laughs) complain about how (laughs) piss weak I thought it was. But Christ's message is clearly that he's asking... People do choose him, mm. which is a relationship. Yeah. Not his example or anything else, but him, the person. So this comes down to a particular term. We're familiar, I think everyone's familiar with catechesis, mm. the learning or instruction or doctrine. But what you're talking about there is kerygma, which I'm led to believe is actually one of the, I do read a little bit occasionally, is in the New Testament nine times. And it's where someone actually encounters Jesus. So someone has an encounter with Jesus, their life is transformed, and then they follow and they want to learn from that point on. But how do you get to a point where you can introduce Jesus to someone or introduce them to Jesus? How do you provide an encounter, not just talk about rules? Well, I think it's got to be a human encounter. You know, like, like you say, so, so often we have presented Christianity just by teaching people. You know, you just got to say, these are the rules, these are the commandments, this is what it means to be moral. But you end up with this idea of Jesus just being a good moral person with a good moral teaching. Whereas actually we need to really encounter people and so that they can see how your life has changed. And once again, not, not just because you're a nice person, but because they can see that actually you've changed dramatically in things that you could not have done yourself. Areas where you were stuck and yet you encountered a saviour who managed to just flip things around. I think that's what brings the gospel to life. You know, So the same way that Jesus reveals God's love through his own humanity we have to reveal that same gospel through our humanity, that you, you can only present Jesus if you've actually met Jesus. So, so we need to actually be open about our own, our own journeys, our own conversion stories. There was a guy in uh, Venezuela who stuck a shotgun at my head and at first was very, very jittery. I didn't know the bloke was there. I thought I was all alone. 
just eating my lunch in the middle of a 40k day and he snuck up behind me and he put the shotgun in the back of my head shaking so much that it jackhammered me in the head a few times i leapt up off the ground my lunch went flying and i'm blurting out in spanish everything i think that i could to calm the situation down and he he was holding me at gunpoint because i was a white guy a gringo and i was in his area and this is a very dangerous area and he you know, he just puts two and two together and, and figures that I'm there for the wrong reason. And I was trying to calm him down. And my opportunity came when he called me a gringo and he said to me in not so nice terms, Nick off gringo. And I corrected him, which might be an odd thing to do to a guy that's got a shotgun at my head, but corrected him and just said to him, no soy gringo, I'm not a gringo. I said, soy australiano, I'm Australian. And no joke, the bloke actually popped his head up over the gun and just looked at me quizzically and said, Australia. And in Spanish says, oh, you have a lot of farms in Australia. I've seen them on Discovery Channel. <laughs> what the heck? I got my hands in the air and I said to him, yeah, yeah, I'm actually from a farm myself. He says, oh, what sort of cows have you got? I said, oh, we've got Angus cows. Goes, oh, we've got Angus too. Good cows, aren't they? He's got a shotgun in my head when I'm talking about how good Angus cows are. We're not having a really good conversation. And eventually he asked me what I was doing there. I'd already told him when I first jumped up, but he wasn't really listening and I wasn't... I was just rattling off whatever Spanish I knew. And we weren't really communicating at that point. So I told him again exactly what the mission was. And he took his finger off the trigger, tapped himself on the chest and said, I'm a Catholic too. I said, oh, good on you. Don't care. Said, Please, just put the gun down. I'm no, no issue to you or your family. And he, he did lowered the gun and he apologised, invited me to sit down and finish my lunch, but it was strewn across the ground, at which point he, he laughed when he realised that I'd lost my lunch. He apologised again and just said, oh, you look like a gringo but I'm glad you've made it this far. Good chat. He looked at my itinerary. He was amazed at where I'd walked through. He picked the towns that were really dangerous and asked how I fared in those. And he, he looked at where I was going and gave me some advice for those. And I've got his photograph. We've got two photographs and some video footage. But in the end, within the space of two and a half minutes, he went from being willing to kill me to posing for his portrait with his shotgun. But that encounter, which was, I'm from Australia and I'm also from a farm. And from that point on, it turns out we're both Catholic as well. Just a different way of responding to a stranger, obviously. But he do, look, he does live in a place. He was protect, protecting his family where there is, was it 42, 52 murders a day? Mm. 52 murders a day. But the encounter itself provided the platform to then actually have a proper conversation, uh, to actually communicate in some way, to find something that was common, to find something in the, the common humanity, in, in the, the purpose, and then build on it from there. I was actually able to share with him the mission. So within two minutes, gunpoint to sharing with him the invitation to pray for complete unity. I think it's a great example of where Christians often go wrong in terms of communicating their faith and where they need to go right. You know, that so often religion is blamed for all the wars and all the conflicts because evangelization becomes like conflict. You know, it's competitive. You know, I'm trying to win this person to, to, to join our religion or our tribe. Uh, or, or, or people have react because they think we're trying to take the high moral ground. Like somehow we're trying to say we're better than them. And in a sense, it's the same reaction of this guy afraid with a shotgun. Whereas I think when we do come to try and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, we've got to start with a shared experience. It's like, you know what? I'm broken as well. I'm as much a sinner as you are. I'm probably even worse. But let me tell you the story of how Christ has changed my life. Mm. I think if, if we start at that point, everyone relaxes and they think, oh, there's nothing to be defensive about. So actually being able to bring our humanity into the situation is the key thing. I had someone on the walk make an accusation against the church. 
and they expected an argument. <laughs> and I just said to them, yeah, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah, we're trying to fix it, though. And it was from a Catholic perspective. And I actually made an apology because it, it affected this, this particular woman. It affected her very personally. And it was a very, well, we can say it without saying the name of this particular woman was in a, and she was married to an alcoholic, abusive husband. Uh, and she had been basically turned down by the church when she went for help in a really horrible, uh, very uncompassionate way. And I apologized to her for what had happened. And she leant across and grabbed me by the hand. And this went up until that moment, she was really defensive. When I apologized for what had happened to her, and I told her because she had received help elsewhere. Some Pentecostal friends in the end had stepped in and, and helped her. I just said to her, look, I'm just really glad you, you were able to get help and that the situation has been resolved and that you're okay, that you've managed to get through this. And she leaned across and grabbed me by the hand and she was shaking. And she just said, Sam, God moves in mysterious ways. And she released my hand. Her husband was sitting beside her. And her whole thing to that point was, how can the Catholic Church believe this? But from that, we sat there, for, I reckon it was four hours, five hours. We sat at their kitchen table and had the most beautiful, raucous conversation about faith and love mm. and about the church. But all of a sudden, that blockage was gone. That one thing, that blocker, that, that was stopping any other conversation from happening. And once that blockage was gone, we were able to actually talk about a number of things that that she might have found very contentious about the church and, and chat about it in a really lighthearted way, in a way that was received. Marty, can I ask, within your profession, you're working in an in engineering profession. It's not. It's definitely not the church. Yeah, correct, are clearly. There, are there times when you feel like you simply have to put your head down and shut up? Oh, look, I've got more bold as the years go on. No, Where I, was the bloke with all the tattoos? Oh, I found, okay. I found a, up in a remote mining camp. I went to the gym one, one day and saw a dude doing chin-ups, a massive guy, massive arms, doing chin-ups, and one arm was covered with Arabic writing and the tattoos, and the other one had the face of Our Lady tattooed on his shoulder and rosary beads tattooed all the way down his forearm. <laughs> and I walked up to this guy and said, you are Lebanese. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, yeah, how did you know? I said, you got <laughs> Arabic writing and a rosary tattooed on your arms. There's no other place you could possibly come from. And we had a great chat, which was, which was remarkable, talking about the church, his experience, my experience, in the middle of a gym with people bench pressing stuff around us. That was a bit of an anomaly, though. Going to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, there is that too. No, but I say in general, my experience is trying to walk with people for long enough until they are you know, open to asking questions or finding an opportunity to talk about Jesus. A bit like how you were talking about with the, the lady, permission to speak to someone about it is a bit important because I don't want to talk to people. If I don't want to talk to someone about anything, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to them. And it can take years to get to that point where, you know, just sort of gently, I'm going to say loving someone. What I really mean is being reasonable in the way you relate with them, which is probably easier in a lot of workplace environments because a lot of, uh, can I say, do I have to think of another word? I'm only thinking, Difficult of, I'm only thinking of Difficult worse ones. People. Okay. A lot of. A lot of. In most workplaces, there's a lot of difficult people who tend to get promoted. So if you're prepared to not be one of those difficult people and just be reasonable to the people around you, you you're already loving them more than most people that they encounter in their career. 
And if you do that for long enough, sooner or later, some of them, you know, will ask you why, and you do this different to the other bosses around me. You know, what's why are you different? Father Dave, you must the fact that you are actually a missionary priest. I assume you get pinned with a lot of questions by people. It's it's fascinating. Like there's there's a whole stereotype around the church, which obviously gets projected onto every priest. So there's, there's a lot of people who you know that they're sort of desperate to ask something, but they don't because they feel they think they, that they already know what you're going to say. They've got a voice in the back of their head of someone who's like, how dare you? You know, how could you ever think that? But at the same time, I'm fascinated by people who are genuinely questioning. I was here in Sydney some years ago. There was a an event run doing sort of street evangelization. And as part of that, there was a number of stalls we had in Martin Place. About three months earlier, Cardinal George Pell had been on Q&A debating Richard Dawkins. <laughs> and he, anyway, he, he talked about this. So, so three months later, we're in Martin Place. And this guy in a business suit walks straight up to one of the brothers and says, excuse me, Cardinal Pell said that atheists can go to heaven. What do you think about that? At which point this brother just grabbed me by the shirt, pulled me forward. So this is like, you answer that one. Um, Customer for you. <laughs> yes. Um, and and I, I kind of did my best to explain what the church's understanding of salvation actually is. And the guy just listened and listened and nodded his head. He said, okay, thank you. And then he walked off. Nothing else. Mm. But it, it fascinated me that for three months, this guy had been wrestling over that question because it... It didn't fit the stereotype of what he thought the church would say about people. Like, like he, he had this idea that we're just going to condemn everyone to hell. And this didn't fit the box. You know, so for three months, this atheist had been wrestling with it, finally met a Catholic. And then whatever I said, I assume he went and thought about it for another three months until maybe he met another Catholic and asked the next question. Mm. But, yeah, it, it fascinates me how people have just got this stereotype of Christianity, which somehow we've got to break through. It's funny. I needed to hear the opposite. There's a point I think where we're going through life where it was like, oh, because I believe in God, I'm going to heaven. Mm. That was it. And what I needed to hear was some of the saints' revelations about hell mm. and how absolutely dire it was and that there were many, what you would have thought were devout Christians in hell. And that was the bolt I needed. That broke the stereotype mm. that I'd kind of grown up with. Mm. But it's fascinating because so many people are afraid, I think, or... They, they hold themselves away because they have some idea the church is going to judge them. Um, or, like you say, on the other end of the spectrum, they think it's all sweet. You know, God loves everyone. Everyone gets in. When, when trying to speak to people about the faith, I think this is where you've got to spend a long time just listening to them. Like long before you even start talking about Jesus or your faith, just spend a long time just getting to know them. Like the, the closer you get to them, the, the more chance you have of actually planting the right message. Mm -hmm. I've got, got a, an old mate of mine who, you know, he, he loves sort of just espousing words of wisdom, most of which are completely irrelevant. But anyway, this one day, he... Um, I can relate to that. <laughs> he, was, he was giving me one of these monologues and he said, look, Dave, young people are like a block of concrete. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah whatever, keep on going. And he's like, you got to search that block of concrete for the tiniest little crack in the face of the concrete and then plant a seed there and walk away. I was like, that's the most profound thing you've ever said. But it, it, it was such a good image of evangelization that so many people are hurting, so many people are, are looking for hope. We've got to find where the question is. Like, like, So you've got to talk to the person, get to know them until you realize that's the bit of the gospel message you need to hear. Say one word and then walk away. And that seed will gradually grow and crack open all the concrete. So the common, especially in young people, is anxiety. 
mm. you know, in terms of the not the crack but the, the concrete. And I would put it to you that Jesus can cure anxiety, mm. and he has in my life. Yeah, I think this is where, yeah, definitely. There's a, a great um, the guy in England, this guy, Charlie Mackesy. Look him up on YouTube. He's got some great little preachings. He, he was an atheist. And a key part of his conversion story, he talks about how it was that anxiety which was just, you know, gnawing away at him. And he was sitting, or he was, he was on the train station one day, and the Bible Society had put these huge advertisements on the train station saying, you know, cast your burdens onto Jesus because he cares for you. And as much as he didn't believe in the existence of God, there was something about that word which just hit the need inside of him. And he just found himself repeating that line again and again. You know, he's like, I'm burdened. I need Jesus. Uh, and, and that started his whole conversion. So definitely, like, I think this is where Christ, he knows the burdens we carry and he wants to speak really clearly into that. So I, in the same way, like, I think anxiety is a massive thing for our culture, like, like even for Christians. I meet a lot of Christians who are really devout and pray a lot, but there's this deep anxiety that they're just not good enough. Well, and but, but you should be able to cure that because they're not good enough. I mean, once you accept that, <laughs> exactly. So it's not it's not your action that is going to get you to Jesus. It's Jesus's action that affects. They're trying me to too. attain the straw man. Well, I have underlying issues with believing that I'm not good enough, and until I admit that. It's absolutely 100% true that I'm not good enough. And, and I think that's the key thing. Like, like you can't know the good news until you know the bad news. Like, mm. at, at some point, you've got to actually acknowledge, yeah, I am pretty bad, but I'm loved. Whereas symptomatic of the whole breakdown of family and social structures is that everyone's trying to prove their identity through what they do. Or, or my identity is based on what people think of, think of me. Uh, and for a lot of people, that becomes almost pathological, like, like it becomes so dominating in their lives, they're paralyzed. But then when they come to pray, the whole thing is projected onto God. Like God doesn't think I'm good enough. I haven't prayed enough. I'm not holy enough. And so they come to God with this same fear that they just have never done enough to earn God's love. I think what you say is exactly true. We need to come to a point where we actually realize, you know, I'm even worse than I think I am. <laughs> and and that's actually the first step towards healing because then when you look at the cross and you see Jesus saying, yeah, you're terrible, but I love you. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I was prepared to do this for you. Now get over yourself. <laughs> like that's... Mother Teresa writing, the closer she got to God, the further she realized she was from him. Or felt, yeah. I can't remember what happened. I remember a time in prayer where something really good had happened and I remember saying, Lord, I don't deserve this. And I felt the Lord say, nope. <laughs> 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 but I'll give it to you anyway. Yeah. And because and that's really where love brings redemption. You know, and we, we use this idea of re being redeemed. The whole idea is almost being like, like, like bought out of slavery where we are enslaved by these false beliefs. And it's only when we discover a love so great that it actually like buys us out of that situation. And, and I think this is where we need to realize, well, okay, I'm, I'm trapped in these ways of thinking that I'm not good enough, I'm not beautiful enough, not strong enough. I need to realize that God looks at me. It, it, I often think it's, it's a bit like a marriage. Like whenever I prepare young couples for marriage, I say, look, you're only actually going to discover what it means to love each other on the day when you realize why you don't love each other and yet you still choose to. Like, like it's, it's when you look at each other and you realize you are a horrible, horrible person and I'm still going to give the rest of my life to, to be with you. That's when you discover what love is.
And in a sense, that that's the mystery of the cross. It's Jesus. He's not sweeping stuff under the carpet saying, oh, you're okay, you're fine. He's actually saying, you know what? This is the state of humanity. Humanity killed me. They, they nailed me to the cross. That's the state of your heart. But I still love you and I'm going to give everything for you. So it's that paradox of the, the bad news and the good news at the same time. Like They, they have to work together. Mm. And that's where we're healed. I have a slightly different perspective on that. I mean, if I, it's perfectly obvious to me why God would like my wife, why God would love my wife, because she's awesome and beautiful. Me, on the other hand, I, I struggle to comprehend why he'd love me. Maybe God likes Bon Jovi as well. You have that in common. Clearly likes Bon Jovi. <laughs> I, want to bring, I want to wrap up this particular podcast by referring back to something that I had struggled with, particularly because of the way it was communicated, and that being the Eucharist. Mm. It was communicated in so many varied fashions. I was less confused. Mm. And I grappled with it. And there are many occasions in different churches, I remember sitting there grappling with, but what is it? What is in front of us? What is going on here? Do they, when they say it is Jesus, do they mean that because we have all come together for this communion, we are the body of Christ and so Jesus is present? Is it symbolic? Is it metaphoric? Is it, you know, occasionally I think, is it literal? Is it meant to be Jesus? But that's nonsense because it's well, bread I, and wine. And... Just, if, if, it, if, if Jesus intended to be anything but literal, why would he create such a bizarre analogy and lose disciples over it that's the key thing john 6 66 yes he loses many of his disciples they turn and walk away oh, okay. and he's not we... just nice to them or he doesn't <laughs> chase after them and say guys you misunderstood me no, he, he, turn, he does the opposite he turns to the disciples and says what about you yeah are you going to are you going to yeah. but in terms of communicating the gospel this is what it comes back to like like how does god communicate his love to us it's by actually giving himself mm. you know so and it comes back to that same thing I was saying about marriage, that the reason why marriage is such a profound image of love is because you know the person so well. You know exactly why they don't deserve to be loved, and yet you still choose to give yourself to them. That's pretty much what's happening in the Eucharist. There's so much marriage imagery around the Eucharist as well, which we could do in a whole other podcast because it's, it's a huge topic. But, but really, this is Christ saying, I know who you are, and I know how bad you are, and I know what... You know, how much you don't care about me, but here I am. I'm going to place myself in your hands as this absolute gift of love. You can do whatever you want to me, and I still love you. So the Eucharist becomes the communication of the gospel, like, like that real heart of God's ever faithful, undying love for us, like ever merciful. We have, and you hear it all the time, people talking about if if God appeared, this is what I'd say to God, etc., and you think, but you're assuming that God will appear how you want God to appear. Mm. But when God appears as in the form of bread, all of a sudden we go, no, 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 I don't want you like this. Give me a go with a beard. Yes, so I can have a go at you or I can ask some big difficult questions or whatever it might be. And we almost don't want God to appear in this way, in, in bread that we'd eat mm. and be a part of us and that grappling with it in some way, shape or form. There was a, a young seminarian. I don't know whether he was ever ordained. I should try and find out. His name was Ishmael in Brazil. Mm. And I got to stay the night at his house and his mother didn't speak English and my Portuguese was horrible. She said something to me in Portuguese and I didn't understand what she'd said. And I was able to say that in Portuguese. Sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. So she slowed down and said it <laughs> even louder. 
And I said, no, 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 sorry, I, I don't speak Portuguese. In Portuguese, I said, I don't speak Portuguese. I don't understand the words you're saying. She grabbed me by the arm and said the same words really slowly. And Ishmael was off to the side laughing. And I actually said to his mum in English, I'm Australian, not deaf. I can hear the words you're saying. They mean nothing to me. And I've had this moment again and again and again through my faith journey where I hear what's being said. I've heard the gospel. I, I'm just left at the end of it going, oh, I don't understand. Jesus loves <laughs> you. If only I had Marty there to patronise me. <laughs> oh, faith journey would be so much easier. Marty, would you like to end us in prayer? I think you should. Right, eh? <laughs> no, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this time bringing us together uh, to talk about this stuff. We just ask you to bless us and bless our families, bless our work, and bless our audience. Lord, we just ask you to pray your blessing upon us, and Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 We are sons of thunder. <laughs> <laughs>